Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, there's just two movements that I want to invite us on this first Sunday of Epiphany uh, to sit with in this story of Jesus's baptism. Uh, Two movements. Uh, The first is the inescapable relevance of Jesus. Luke opens this passage in chapter 3, verse 15, saying, As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, this Sunday marks the beginning of the Epiphany season. And depending on uh, where you live and what tradition you are a part of, it, this has gone by different names. Uh, if you've grown up in the Western tradition, and whether that's Roman Catholic, Protestant, uh, we call this the season of Epiphany. And uh, the Feast of Epiphany is actually uh, this past Thursday, uh, but then we celebrate for eight weeks a season of Epiphany. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, if there's anyone who grew up in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, you know that this season is referred to as the, the-, as the Seasons of Theophanies. Um, and uh, each season uh, begins with a different, or in each tradition, it begins with a little bit of a different story. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it begins with the story that we're going to sit with today, which is the baptism of Jesus. And in the Western tradition, it begins with the story of the three magi who, uh, spoiler alert, and hopefully I don't ruin too many Christmas carols, weren't actually kings. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, they were uh, Gentile priestly elites. Uh, and, uh, and so the season for the West begins with that story. But this is a season, regardless of what story you begin with, this is, a, this is a season that focuses in on the manifestations or the revelations of Jesus. Uh, and that is what the baptism of Jesus is all about. And we're going we're gonna to move into this story in just a moment. But before we get there, it's important to know what Jesus is going to do after his baptism. Uh, Luke tells us he enters into the wilderness for 40 days where uh, he is tempted by Satan. Uh, He then leaves the wilderness after being tended to and cared for by the angels. And he begins to draw to himself disciples, apprentices, followers. It would be his group of first friends. And I think this is important for us as we enter into the season of Epiphany to remember that when Jesus is revealed, it isn't just for revelation's sake. But when Jesus is revealed, he has a way of drawing people to himself and to one another. And these people that he would draw to himself are people who are in that moment looking for rescue. They're looking for rescue from bondage, from sin, from divisions, from sickness, from corrupt government officials. And, they, and this type of bondage had gone on long enough that they were beginning to find, in the midst of everything they were experiencing, deep streams of division and deep disillusionment. And I think many of us could probably uh, say, I know what that feels like. Where seasons of long suffering, of long pandemic, A long relational fallout leads to division and disillusionment. And so then our strategies for mitigating those things, our strategies for uh, fixing them, for setting the world to right, much like the people in Jesus' day, are, are vast and prevalent. Right? Some of our strategies, maybe these are just mine, so you don't have to amen them, is to argue till we agree or just walk away. We try one social institution, then another to set things right. And when those don't work, we move on to others. 
We try new laws, and when those don't work, we try new lawmakers, and when those don't work, we go back and repeat the cycle. And are all of those things important? Absolutely. And yet, when Jesus enters the scene, he enters by another way. Jesus enters and is revealed in a similar moment to ours. There's religious and political divisions. There's racial divisions. But what becomes strikingly obvious is that Jesus' life and Jesus' message, and I would argue his continuing objective, is eventually to bring all of human life under the direction of his wisdom, his goodness, and his power. And just to put all of my cards on the table as we enter into this season of Epiphany, Jesus' revolution, because that is what it is. It is, a, it is a turning over of the status quo. It is a subverting of the world's powers. But this revolution is first and foremost always a revolution of the human heart. His revolution does not proceed through the means of social institutions and laws and lawmakers. His revolution does not enter into human history through other forms of existence that impose good order of life upon people who come under their power. Is he there? Is he involved in those things? Yes. But that is not the primary means by which he enters. He does not come in order to wrangle or to force, but rather there is a revolution that happens in the deepest parts of us. He changes people from the inside out, and he does so through friendship with God and friendship with one another. And it is from those depths that social change comes, that justice rolls down. And so I think one of the first questions that the Spirit is inviting us to sit with this epiphany season is what kind of Messiah are we expecting? I know how I could answer that. I can't answer that for you, but what kind of Messiah are you expecting? And listen, I know some of us have been around long enough that we know the right answers. That if we were to go, okay, hey, we're going to go around and we're going to all say out loud what kind of Messiah we're expecting. Most of us have enough knowledge to go, well, here's the right answer. But as the Bible says, by their fruit, you will know them. And so the question is, what's in our bones? When we're squeezed, what kind of Messiah, what kind of God is it that we want? Maybe even another question to consider is what stories have formed those expectations? What stories have formed and captured our imagination and animated our heart for the type of God that we are expecting? I've been around the church. I've been a friend and a follower of Jesus long enough to know that even in the American West, there's a few predominant messiahs that we tend to look for. We're formed in our stories, whether it's old school westerns to brand new Marvel Avengers movies or anything in between, whether it's you know, Flannery, Day O'Connor, any of those. These stories have a way of forming our expectations for the type of messiah we're looking for. Are we expecting a messiah who is a distant deity? There's ancient truth about him, but he's relatively distant. He has little to say anything about our lived experiences. And most of us would be like, no, I don't believe that. And yet our lives kind of give us up on that. We move from Monday to Saturday as if God is not actually present and at work with us. Are we expecting a Messiah who's a demanding judge? And just, just to put, again, this may be a little bit too autobiographical, but I have, you know, our family kind of moved from tradition to tradition, so I've actually made my way through all of these. 
We sort of began with a distant deity. And then we moved to the demanding judge, a God who was quick to strike, who was constantly annoyed, who would use violence and retribution in order to get his way and to set things right. Maybe we're expecting a Messiah who is um, the micromanager, right? This is the next tradition we moved into, a little bit of a control freak. God was a helicopter parent who wanted to control every element of our lives. And then from those, and this is where uh, we found a little bit of relief, we moved into the Messiah who's a doting grandparent. And this is a breath of fresh air if you've, ever just, if you've ever experienced a tradition or you've ever believed in a God that's a demanding judge or a micromanager. This is where most of us find ourselves in reaction to those things, but there's a subtle tyranny that exists here as well. It's not the tyranny of a God who's the judge and vindictive, but it's the tyranny of our own desires. In this version, God is fulfilling every desire we have. And to be clear, God is not after killing our hearts or killing our desires. He's the one who has given them to us. In fact, one of Jesus's number one questions to people was, what do you want? What do you desire? But in doing that, what God is inviting us to do is to meet him in the desires he's given us so that we can discern that desire with God and hold it up to the kingdom of God. What Messiah are you expecting? Is it the distant deity, the demanding judge, the micromanager, the doting grandparent? And I will say that with all of those, I think that there's grace and curiosity and patience that's needed. But even with that, I just want to say as plainly as I can that God is not like any of those. And the difficulty with it is that you could take a few Bible verses out of context, throw them on a piece of paper, and construct a version of that God. And it's not just about having wrong ideas about God, because our ideas about God, our ideas about reality, our ideas about ourselves never stay in our heads. We're not brains on a stick. Our ideas make their way into our lives. And so these false idolatrous images of God have done real damage and real harm. They've done it to me. They've done it to you. They've done it to the church, to the church's witness. Real harm has been done in, the, in their names. And this is why the second movement is so important in our story this morning is that Jesus is a different Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming is more powerful than I. He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you this morning that the words of John and the actions of God at Jesus' baptism are intended to teach us that God does not come as we expect him to come. Right? Water and fire, we would all agree, are very different. Human baptism and divine baptism are very different. Wheat and chaff are different as are many of our conceptions about God, are different than who God actually is. So the question then is, okay, fine, then what is God like? And here's what I would say, friends, God is like Jesus. The baptism amongst so many deep and true things is God's side of a conversation where Jesus is saying things like, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 4. The Father and I are one, John 10. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me, John 12. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him, John 14. 
the heavens opening up and the Holy Spirit coming down and God the Father going, you are my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased, is God's affirmation of these statements yet to be made. God's actions are the foundation of the early church's theology of Christ. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, Colossians 1. In fact, one of the ways the early church had of talking about it was that Jesus was the sacrament of God. Just like this bread and wine in some mystical way that we don't fully understand. In fact, one theologian said, I'd rather receive it than understand it. Just as this becomes the presence of God to us as we eat and drink, Jesus was the presence of God in the world. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling, Philippians 1. Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals what God is like. There's a phrase that's attributed to two different theologians, so we don't know who actually said it. Either Michael Ramsey or John Taylor, but it's this, and I love this. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. Which means any image of God, any thought of God we have, has to filter through who we receive and have in Jesus. And this is what I would submit to you is so important for us about the season of Epiphany. It's easy to sort of move toward Advent's the big one, Lent, we know we're going to have to give something up, but we're just waiting for Easter. And Epiphany just becomes like sort of something to get through in order to get to those things. But I actually think we have done that to the detriment of our souls. Because before we enter into Lent to meditate upon the sacrifice, move into Easter, move into ordinary time of what it looks like to join with God in this cooperating friendship, we have to ask the question, who is this God? And what Epiphany does for us is coming off the heels of Advent where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We are now giving way to the revelation of the very heart of God, Father, Son, and Spirit in the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus. And we are given the image of a God who is not distant, who is not detached, demanding, or a deterministic micromanager or a doting grandparent, but a God who is love and whose love is cruciform, who is a love that is emptied of privilege and coercion. It is a fierce, tenacious, and loyal love, unlike our worldly conceptions in every possible way. And family, that is good news. So friends, as we close, as uh, your pastors and leaders, we have waited and listened. And the sense, one of the, the things that we sense is this invitation from the Spirit uh, toward a few practices as a community in the season of, uh, of Epiphany. And these two practices sort of flow out of the central invitation for us, which is to immerse ourselves in the revelation of who Jesus is. And this isn't about getting theology right, getting doctrine right. If you're anything like me, these last two years, and even longer, have kind of, I want to say invited sounds really soft, but I'll just speak for me, have forced me into asking questions about God and of God I never would have imagined myself asking. 
of doubting in real ways, God, are you really who you say you are? And it's one thing to just simply run to a whole bunch of books to sort of try to, uh, to firm up what it is I believe about God and maybe lower the anxiety level of my own soul because I'm the pastor and I'm not supposed to doubt. I'm not supposed to have anxiety over, God, are you actually who you say you are? I'm not supposed to be the one who does that. But the thing that I keep coming back to time and time again as a wise mentor often reminds me is, she says the best thing you can do is just to sit with Jesus himself. And I think there are so many different ways of doing that. But I think one of the ways in which I think is healing for so many of us is by immersing ourselves in the story of who God actually is. And so two ways that we're inviting our community to do this. The first is over the next seven Sundays, we're going to be spending time in what has been called the book of signs in John's gospel. Uh, within John's gospel, uh, there are seven miracles performed by Jesus that scholars have called the book of signs. You're familiar with some of them, water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000. And each of these miracles point to something that is true about God and something that is true about us. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to sit in these stories. Uh, the second way we believe we're being called to immerse ourselves in the revelation of Jesus is by plunging ourselves into the revelation of Jesus as it unfolds in the midst of real people and real places. I've said this before, we're formed by stories, and what stories we immerse ourselves in matter for the kind of people we're becoming. I'll say this, uh, as a community working and longing to walk the way of Jesus in Charlottesville, family, it's one thing to say that we hope and desire to be a people who receive and then give away God's uh, hospitality, restoration, and shalom. It's a whole nother to immerse ourselves in the stories and the actual life of the one who forms us from the inside out to be the kind of people who do that. There's a subtle difference there, but it's an important one. There's one thing to extend God's hospitality, restoration, and shalom. And to, with God, allow him to form us to be the kind of people that that is our instinctual response. And one of the ways we do that is by immersing ourselves in the stories. And so I'd invite you this season to pick up a copy of our seasonal. As I mentioned, our hope is to read through the Gospel of John together as a community over the course of Epiphany. Uh, we've marked out a reading plan that gives us five readings per week. So if you're anything like me, it gives you a couple days to catch up. We've given space for a kind of Lectio Divina type of prayerful reflection. This isn't just about Bible study. It's about reading with God and paying attention to what the Holy Spirit's inviting us into. And the promise on the back end of this family is not you're suddenly going to be 10 times better than you are. It isn't even that things are going to be better. But maybe we could just make space for God to do whatever it is that God wants to do. Maybe it's heal. Maybe it's restore. Maybe it's transform. He gets to do that. He gets to decide when. What we get to do is make space for God's action in our lives. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.